Chapter Four of the Finding of Hallgren by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Life monstrous and horrible. It looks, said Spud O'Malley, as if some bad little spalene of the skies had thrown pebbles at it when it was soft. It's fair pockmarked with places where the stones have hit. He was staring through a forward lookout where the whole sky seemed filled with a tremendous disk. One quarter was brilliantly alight. It formed the fat crescent within whose arms the rest of the globe was held in fainter glowing. By comparison, this greater portion was dark, though illuminated by earthlight far brighter than any moonlight on earth. But light or dark, the surface showed nothing but an appalling desolation where the rocky expanse had been still further torn and disrupted, pockmarked, as O'Malley had said, with great rings that had been the walls of tremendous volcanoes. Chet was consulting a map where a similar area of circular markings had been named by scientists of an earlier day. Hercules, he mused, and stared out at the great circle of the moon. The crater of Hercules, yes, that must be it. The dark area off to one side is the Lake of Dreams. Below it is the Lake of Death, Atlas, Hercules, suffering cats. What volcanoes they must have been. I don't like your names, objected O'Malley. Lake of Death? That's not so good. And I don't see any lake. And the whole moon is wrong side up, according to your map. Chet reached for the ball control and moved it, and swung their ship in a slow, rotary motion. The result was an apparent revolution of the moon. There, it's right side up, Chet laughed. That is, if you can tell me what direction is up, out here in space. And as for the names, don't let them disturb you. They don't mean anything. Some old-timer with a little three-inch telescope probably named them. The darker areas look like seas to them. Astronomers have known better for a long time, and you and I, we're darn sure of it now. The great sea of shadow, a darker area, within the shaded portion whose only light came from the earth, was plainly a vast expanse of blackened rock, an immense depression like the bottom of some earlier sea. It was heaved in the corrugations that Chet knew would be mountain-high at close range. Marked with the orifices of what once had been volcanoes, the floor of the Lake of Death was hundreds of miles in extent. But as for seas and lakes, there was no sign of water in the whole vast, desolate globe, an unlikely place, Jed admitted, for the beginning of their search, and yet those flashes of light, the S.O.S., they had been real. The bow blast had been roaring for over an hour. Their strong deceleration made the forward part of the ship seem down. And down it was, too, by reason of the pull of the great globe they were approaching. But the roaring exhaust up ahead was checking their speed. Chet measured and timed the apparent growth of the moon disk, and nodded his satisfaction at their reduced speed. This will stop us, he said. I didn't know, but we would have to swing off, shoot past, and return under control. 
but we're all right. And there is the place we're looking for. The big ring of Hercules, the level floor of rock inside it, and over at one side, the smaller crater. He was gazing entranced at the mammoth circle that had been a volcano's throat, the very one he had seen flashed on the screen. He moved the control to open a side exhaust and change their direction of fall. He was still staring, with emotions too overwhelming for words, and Spud O'Malley was silent beside him, as the great ring spread out and became an upthrust circle of torn, jagged mountains some thirty or more miles across and directly below. They fell softly into that circle. Its mountainous sides were high. They blocked off the view of the enormous terraces beyond that had been the crater's sloping sides. From the direction that had suddenly become east, the rising sun's strong light struck in a slant to make the bar rocks seem incandescent. On one side, the giant rim of the encircling mountains was black with shadow. The shadow reached out across the vast rocky floor, almost to the foot of the opposite wall, many miles away. It enveloped their falling ship like a cushioning, ethereal sea, velvety, softly black, almost palpable. It was wrapping about them in the darkness of night as Chet's slender hand touched so delicately upon the ball control, checked them, eased off, drew back again, until the thundering exhausts echoed softly, where their ship hung suspended a hundred feet above a rocky floor. The shrouding darkness erased the harsh contours of mountain and plain. It seemed shielding this place of desolation and horror from critical, perhaps unfriendly eyes of these beings from another world and Chet laid their ship down gently and silently on the earth-lit plain, as if he, too, felt this sense of intrusion, as if there might be those who would resent the trespass of unwanted guests. But Spud O'Malley must have experienced no such delicacy of feeling. He let go one long, pent-up breath. "'And may the saints protect us,' he said. "'The lake of death outside and inside here is purgatory itself, or I don't know my geography. But you made it, Chet, me boy, you made it. What a sweet little pilot you are. There's air here, Chet was telling his companion later, air of a sort, but it's no good to us. He pointed to the spectro-analyzer with its grouping of lines and light bands. Carbon dioxide, he explained, and some nitrogen, but mighty little of either. See the pressure gauge? It's way down, but that won't bother us too much. We've got some suits stowed away in the supplies that will hold an atmosphere of pressure, and their oxygen tanks will do the rest. We were ready for anything we might find on our dark moon trip, but we didn't need them there. Now they'll come in handy. That's all right, O'Malley assured him. I've gone down underwater in a diving suit. I've gone outside a ship for emergency repairs in a suit like yours when the air was as thin as this. I can stand it either way. But what I want to know is this. What the devil chance is there of finding your man Halgren in such a frozen corner of purgatory as this? 
How could he live here? Here you've come in a fine big ship, and his was a little bit of a bullet by comparison. Yet, I doubt if you could live here for five years with all your big oxygen supply. Now, how could he have done it with his little outfit? And what has he eaten? Does this look like a likely place for shooting rabbits, I ask you? Can a man catch a mess of fish in that empty lake of death? Or did Haldegren bring a sandwich with him? It may be. Chet Bullard shook his head doubtfully. Don't get sarcastic, he grinned. You can't think of any wilder questions than I have asked myself. He couldn't have lived here, Spud. That's the only answer. It just isn't humanly possible. All I know is that he did. I can't tell you how I know it, but I do. Those lights were a human call for help. No living man but Haldegren could have flashed them. He's alive, or was then. That's all I know. Spud crossed the control room, as he had done a score of times, to look through a glass port at the world outside. Chet, too, turned to the lookout by which he stood and stared through it. The men had found themselves surprisingly light within the ship. They had been compelled to guard against sudden motion. A step, instead of carrying them one stride, might hurl them the length of the room. This lowered gravitational pull helped to explain to the pilot that outer world. There, close by, was the rocky plain on which he had landed the ship. Smooth and shiny as obsidian in places, again it was spongy gray, the color of volcanic rock, bubbling with imprisoned gases at the instant of hardening. It stretched out and down, that gently rolling plain, for a thousand yards or more, then ended in a welter of nightmare forms done in stone. It was like the work of some demented sculptor's tortured brain. Jutting tongues of rock stood in air for a hundred, two hundred feet. Chet hardly dared estimate size in this place where all was so strange and unearthly. The hot rock had spouted high in the thin air, and it had frozen as it threw itself frantically out from the inferno of heat that had given it birth. The jets sprayed out like spume-topped waves. They were whipped into ribbons that the winds of this world could not tear down, and the ribbons shone, waving white in the earthlight. The tortured stone was torn and ripped into twisted contortions, whose very writhing told of the hell this had been. Its grotesque horror struck through to the deeper levels of Chet's mind with a feeling he could not have depicted in words. From the higher elevation where the ship lay, he could look out and across this welter of storm-lashed rock to see it level off, then vanish, where another crater-mouth yawned black. Here was the inner crater. It had seemed small before. It was huge now, a place of mystery, a black, waiting throat into which Chet knew he must go, a place of indefinable terror. But it was a place, too, whence strange flashes had come, flashes that had told of the distress and suffering of men since the time when wireless waves had been widely used. The old call, the S.O.S., 
It had come from that throat. It had seemed a call sent directly to him, and Chet Bullard's eyes held steadily toward that place of mystery and of a sender unknown. I'm going down, he told himself, more than O'Malley. There's something about it I can't understand. Something pretty damnable about it, I admit. But whatever it is, that's what I am here to find out. "'Tis a devil of a place to die," said O'Malley, "'and not one I'd pick out at all. "'But it may be we won't have to. "'I'm going along, of course.' The master pilot was reaching for the flexible metal suit he had brought from the storeroom. It was airtight, gas-proof. It would hold an internal pressure far beyond anything the wearer would demand, and its headpiece was flexible, like the body of the suit, and would fit him closely. He drew the suit up over the clothes he wore and closed the front with one pull of a metal tab. Within, soft, rubber-faced cushions had interlocked. The body would fasten to the headpiece in the same way. But Chet paused with the headpiece in his hand. He looked at the glass window that would be before his eyes, at the thin diaphragms that would come over his ears and that would admit all ordinary sounds. And he tried out the microphone attachment that he could switch on to bring to his ears the faintest whisper from outside. All this he examined with care while he seemed to be thinking deeply. Then he straightened and looked at his companion. No, Spud, you're not going, he said. This is my job. You stay with the ship. You and I make a rather small army. We don't know yet what we may be up against, and we mustn't risk all our forces in one advance. I'll see what there is, and, in case anything happens, you can take the ship back. I've taught you enough on the way over. I had this very thing in mind. He slipped the helmet over his blond head before O'Malley could reply. The earpieces and the microphone allowed him to hear. Another diaphragm in the center of the metal across his chest took his own voice and shouted it into the room. Sure, I know you want to go, Spud, but you'll have to stay in reserve. Now show me how well you can fly this ship. Lift her off, then drift over that crater, and we'll have a look-see. Spud O'Malley's face was glum as he obeyed. Spud had seen nothing but death in this place of horror. Chet had observed that plainly. Yet it was equally plain that the Irish pilot was finding the order to live in safety a bitter dose. But Spud knew how to take orders. He lifted the little ball gently and swung the ship out toward the blackness of that deeper pit. Chet was watching the changing terrain. He saw the place of solid spouted rock end, saw it flatten out to an undulating surface that had rolled and heaved itself into many-colored shapes. Even in the earthlight, the kaleidoscopic colors were vivid in their changing reds and blues and yellow sheens. Then the surface sloped sharply away, though here it was rough with broken rock where half-hardened lava, coughed from that throat, had fallen back and adhered to the molten sides. This rock in the inner crater was gray, pale, and ghostly in the earthlight. It went down and still down, where Chet's eyes could not follow. 
down to an utter blackness. Chet was staring speculatively at the waiting dark when the first flash came. Blindingly keen, a flash of white light, another and another. It blazed dazzlingly into their cabin in vivid dashes and dots. The same signal as before was being repeated. A hundred yards away was a little shelf of rock. Chet jerked at O'Malley's shoulder with his metal-cased hand and pointed. Set her down, he ordered. Let me out there. We can't put the ship down where those lights are. The throat is too narrow. There may be air currents that would smash us on a sharp rock. I'll go down. You wait. I'll be back. He was opening the inner door of the entrance port. Another closure in the outer shell made an airlock. He took time for one grip at the hand of Spud O'Malley, one grin of excited, adventurous joy that wrinkled about his eyes behind the window of his helmet. Then he picked up a detonite pistol, examined again its charge of tiny shells, jammed it firmly into the holster at his waist, and swung the big door shut behind him. And Pilot O'Malley watched him go with a premonition that he dared not speak. He heard the closing of the outer door, saw the tall, slender figure in a metal suit like a knight of old, as Chet waved once, settled the oxygen tank across his shoulders, and picked his way carefully over a waste of shattered stone that led down and down into the dark. Then the Irishman looked once at the suit he had expected to wear, stared back where the figure of Chet had vanished, then dropped his head upon his hands while his homely face was twisted convulsively. It had come so soon. The great adventure was upon them before he had realized the reconnaissance, the flashes, and then Chet had gone, and now he was alone in a silent ship that rested quietly in the soundless world. The silence was heavy upon him. It seemed pressing in with actual weight to bear him down. It was shattered at the last by the faintest of whispered echoes from without. Spud was on his feet in an instant, his eyes straining at one lookout after another, each giving him a view of only the desolation he knew and hated. What could it have been? he demanded. He found and rejected a dozen answers before he saw, far down in the black crater mouth, a flash of red, then heard again that ghost of a sound, and knew it for what it was. Thick walls, these of the spaceship, and insulated well and the thin atmosphere of this wild world could cut a blast of sound to a mere fraction of its volume. But the walls were admitting a fragmental echo of what must have been a reverberating voice. They were quivering to the roar of exploding detonite. It was Chet. He was fighting. He was in trouble. Spud's trembling hands steadied upon the metal control. He lifted the ship as smoothly as even Chet might have done and he drove it out and down into a throat too narrow for safety, but where the tiny red flash of a weapon had called with an S.O.S. as plain as any lettered call, a message to which brave men have everywhere responded. He saw Chet but once. The master pilot had shown him the flare-release lever. 
He moved it now, and the place of darkness was suddenly blinding with light. There were rocks close at hand. The crater had narrowed to a funnel throat that was cut and terraced as if by human hands. Below, it ended in a smooth stone floor, where the lava had sealed it shut. From a terrace came the gleaming reflection of Chet's suit. Miraculously, the gleam was doubled, as if another in similar garb stood at his side, and beyond, from blocks of stone, came leaping things, living creatures. The light died. Spud realized he had not opened the release lever full. He fumbled for it, found it, jammed it over, and in the light that followed, he saw only empty, terraced walls, where nothing moved, and a lava floor below that, for an instant, gapped open, then again was smooth and firm. And the thunder of his ship's exhausts came back to him from those threatening walls, the tell of a loneliness more certain and terrible than any solitude he had found in the silence where he had waited above. But through all his dismay ran an undercurrent of puzzled wonderment, for here on a dead world, where all men agreed there could be no life, he had seen the impossible. Only one glimpse before the light had died, only for an instant had he seen the things that leaped upon Chet, but he knew. Never again could any man tell Spud O'Malley that the moon was a lifeless globe, and he knew that the life was of a form monstrous and horrible and malign. End of chapter 4